Welcome back. It's been quite a while since we've actually done our uh, Sunday morning podcast, our Sunday sermon podcast from Palby Christian Church. So much so that I forgot even my intro. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the elite pastor here at Palby Christian Church in beautiful central Oregon. It's good to have you with us. Uh, First timers, uh, if you ever are in our neighborhood, uh, drop us a line. Swing by on a weekend. Uh, we've got four services, one on Saturday night and three on Sunday morning. You can go to our website, palviewchurch.com. And ironically, you probably found this podcast by going to palviewchurch.com. So you probably already knew that. Anyways, we are taking a little bit of a break from our regular Hebrews series, and we're doing a little mini-series in the book of Hebrews itself. Now, I'll explain that a little bit later on. But I want to begin by mentioning a very important event that's going to be happening this week on Wednesday, February 14th. You you may think that you know what that is. Um, You know, it has something to do with love and hearts and things like that. No, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is an event that's going to happen for many, many churches around the world. Now, in our tradition, which is the Restoration Church Movement, where we really don't follow a lot of the high church events on the church calendar, like Epiphany or All Saints Day, things like that, we've never really focused in on this event ever, at least not in the last 11, 12 years that I've been connected to this church. I don't think we've even ever even mentioned it. But it is a day that's been held sacred by many Christians for centuries, and it's not Valentine's Day. It's Ash Wednesday. It's a commemoration that's not specifically commanded in Scripture, but it is a day where the intention of the day is very much connected with the principles of the Bible. What is Ash Wednesday? Well, Ash Wednesday originated somewhere between the 6th century and the 8th century, um, and it was a day for the church to gather to remember the sinfulness of mankind and the need for repentance as a sign of sorrow for their sin and the decision to be made clean, believers would then sprinkle ashes over their heads. Now, eventually this became a ritual where priests would smear the ashes of the previous year's Palm Sunday branches that they would have burned after last year's Palm Sunday. And uh, they would then use those ashes and they would put the sign of the cross on people's foreheads as they gathered there in church. That was the ritual. This would uh, begin, then, the 40-day period known as Lent that would lead up to the celebration of the Resurrection on Easter Sunday. That's what this whole thing is all about. Um, So, Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, then Ash Wednesday, and then Lent, and then finally Resurrection Sunday. Now, where did this idea of sprinkling ashes on your head come from? Well, in the Bible, ashes are always associated with humility, with uh, sorrow, with repentance, and actually, oddly enough, with mortality, you know, dust to, to dust, ashes to ashes. People in repentance would express this deep sorrow, and they would rent their garments, they, they would tear their garments, and then they would either sit in ashes or pour ashes over their head, or, or both. This would remind them, again, that they were mortal, from dust to dust, ashes to ashes, but also they would remember, this would remind them that it was their sin that created that situation of mortality. Okay, The sorrow that then they were expressing was a sorrow that was um, intended for their lives to change, to have a turnaround. Okay, For example, 
in the ministry of the Old Testament prophet Jonah. We see Jonah being sent by God to the pagan city of Nineveh. These people were horrible, okay? utterly sinful, wicked, often used in ancient times to be the embodiment of sin. Like we would say, you know, Vegas or San Francisco is kind of sin city, right? Well, Nineveh would have been called sin city back then. It was that kind of place. It was, you know, New York, uh, San Francisco, Portland, right? Now, the message that Jonah was to take to the people was very simple. Uh, we, we read it in chapter 1, verse 2. God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come before me, says God. Now, if you know the story of Jonah, you will remember that Jonah does not obey God. Well, not at first. In fact, Jonah decides to hop on a ship right. and go the entire opposite direction of Nineveh. Right. Ironically, in doing so, in doing so, Jonah himself personified the Ninevites. They were living 180 degrees in the opposite direction of what God would want them to. And here's Jonah going 180 degrees the opposite of what God wanted him to do. He runs away. And God gets his attention, first of all, by a storm. He's on the ship. God sends a storm. And, and the, the sailors on the ship, they're going, maybe one of us has offended our gods. They were pagan soldiers, uh, sailors. And they said, maybe one of us has offended our God. And Jonah goes, yeah, that, that would be me. The storm is because of me. But instead of saying, I'm sorry, God, I'll go, he actually would rather die than obey God. He literally would rather die. So he tells them, guys, if you want to save yourself, throw me overboard. He has no idea. He has no idea what God's going to do. He thinks that this is going to be the end of his life. He would rather die than to repent. He would rather die. Now, I, I, I have a feeling that he could have saved himself a lot of trouble, that he would have appeased the anger of God if he would have just said, all right, I'll do it. So he's thrown overboard. And again, he, he's thinking that that's an easier thing to do than to obey God. But God's like, not so fast, Jonah. You can't get away from my command that easily. Um, and so God saves Jonah from drowning by sending this huge fish to come and swallow Jonah whole. Now, Jonah stays in the belly of the, the fish for three days. Now, you can imagine the trauma of that experience. Uh, you can imagine even the re repercussions that Jonah is going to have to live with probably for the rest of his life um, because of that PTSD uh, and maybe bleached skin and all this kind of stuff. But it's there in the belly of the fish that Jonah has a a repentance experience. He cries out to God. This is Jonah chapter 2. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. What a picture. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And then here's the lesson. Those who cling to worthless idols 
turn away from God's love for them. Turn away. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed, I will make good. Do you see the repentance there? Do you see not just a change of mind, but a change of heart and a change of ways? So then Jonah then goes to Nineveh. He preaches what God wants him to preach. Something amazing happens there in the city. Although it's really not any more amazing than Jonah's repentance, right? Where he at one point would rather die than to obey God. The Bible tells us this in Jonah chapter 3. The Ninevites believed God. They believed God. A fast was proclaimed. Now, what I want you to see is they believed God, but immediately there was some action. Okay? The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And most likely, they would put ashes on their head, too, because in Scripture, sackcloth and ashes always go together. When Jonah's warning reaches the king of Nineveh, the king rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust and the ashes. And this is the pro- proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did, okay, they believed, but then they did. And when God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So the king is sitting down in the dust and the ashes there, and essentially it's like sprinkling ashes on your head. The act is demonstrating something deeper than just the physical. Okay, There's something going on inside, in the heart. Now, that's a huge introduction for what I want us to look at today. Last week, we talked about how Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 3, there, there were five foundations of our faith that the author of Hebrews has brought up. He, he's concerned that the Hebrew converts are not going to be strong enough to with, withstand the temptation to turn back to be justified by the law rather than to trust in Jesus and his sufficiency, his perfect life, his perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for their sins. So the author is scolding these converts for not growing up, for not growing past those basic doctrines of the faith. And then he listed those five doctrines out. See, he said that, guys, if you can't even get these five, how can you go deeper? How, how can I teach you more? You, you, you got to go back and understand these five. And so, if you recall from last week, God and I had a little bit of a discussion, and he told me, I, I really feel like he was leading me to say, why don't you stop your your progression through the book of Hebrews, just for a little while. And why don't you look at these five things and teach them to your congregation so that they will at least know the basics, so that they're not shaken when you go on to the next part of Hebrews. And so that's, you know, I got confirmation from my wife and from Pastor Brian. So this morning, I've set the scene for us. And I think it's very timely since this Wednesday is going to be a time where Christians around the world are going to be focusing in on repentance. I thought it was amazing for us to then consider the basic foundational truth of repentance. 
what is repentance? What does it mean? What, what does it look like for believers? Now, unfortunately, repentance is not a word that is heard in churches as often as it yeah, probably sure. should be. To be honest, I probably don't use this at that word a lot in, in sermons. But the Bible uses it. In fact, uh, 46 times in the Old Testament, 65 times in the New Testament. Um, both in the Hebrew, which is the, the, the root word shuv, which means to return, and in the Greek, which is metanoia, which means to change your mind, put together those two ideas to return and to change the mind, the idea is a lot stronger than what you might have ever thought repentance was. Unfortunately, a lot of believers I know think repentance is just merely feeling bad about what you've done, to be sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Unfortunately, sorry doesn't cut it. The problem with the, that definition is it neglects the idea that in the Bible, repentance always was connected to a life change. Okay. It, it's like what my mom was trying to get at when I would say, sorry. She, she wouldn't even let me get by by, by just saying, sorry. She goes, no, I'm sorry. You know, you, you got you to gotta own this sorry. Not, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But then she'd say, well, are you sorry? Because you're sorry? Because you did something wrong? Or are you sorry you got caught, right? See, I think that cuts right to the heart of the biblical idea of what repentance is. Not being sorry because you got caught, but being sorry because you know what you did was wrong and you want to change. I, I love how the root of the word is found in the writing of the Old Testament prophet, Joel. In Joel chapter 2, God is speaking to his people. He had sent calamity to discipline his people. And then he said to them, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Return to me with all your heart. I, I still think that we don't truly fully understand that. To love the Lord our God with all our heart. To return to him with all our heart. But there is all of these actions that are included with fasting and weeping and mourning. But it's always a heart thing. Rend your hearts. Don't rend your garments. Don't ruin your, your shirt by showing God how bad you feel about this. Change your heart. Let your heart break. See, even in the Old Testament, God wanted your heart. It wasn't just an outward show that he was looking for. He desired that his people understand that they had sinned and that they were truly wanting to change so that they wouldn't sin again, that they were sorry for what they had done, not sorry because they had gotten caught. So there are three things that we can take away from this foundational truth of what repentance in the Bible is all about. Because there's a lot of places where repentance is talked about. And if I can boil them down to three things, we find out, number one, repentance is inclusive. It's an inclusive word. Romans 3, 10 through 12. Paul is actually quoting Psalm 14 here in this chapter. He says, it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And here it is. All have turned aside. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. 
No one does good, not even one. In other words, repentance is not just for those people. Those people. And by the way, I don't have to mention any group because I think probably in your mind, you already know those people, whatever it is. And everybody has their own those people. The, the people whose sin is so egregious that it makes us good Christians shudder. The Bible is clear. Whether you're a pagan or a practicing Christian, we all find ourselves falling short of the perfection of God's law. We all, whether we're pagan or whether we're practicing Christian, we all sin and we are all called to a heart of repentance. Okay? We all are. Jesus continually confronted the religious leaders of his day. Now, these are the guys who were trying to do it right, who wanted to look like they were good. He called them out on their hypocrisy because they had this outward appearance of being right with God, but they could not admit that they were sinners. They could not admit that they were just as much of a sinner as those that they wanted to condemn. That's why I say, you have a group in your mind. I know you do. Where you go, well, at least I don't do that. Those people aren't going to get in. Those people aren't going to be saved. They're horrible sinners, right? See, folks, we don't earn our way into God's good grace by being moral or having our own set of ethics because we all sin. And the only way that we're right with God is when we repent. And if we don't get that, we're in danger of treating God's grace with contempt. Like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll take the forgiveness. Thank you. But we miss out on this power of the Holy Spirit to actually change who we are. It's an inclusive word. It's Number two, it's a decisive word. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching to the Jews gathered in Jerusalem. The message was that in crucifying Jesus, they actually had thrown away the gift of God, the rescue from heaven that God had given to them, their Messiah. God had provided for them. The message was convicting. And Peter concludes the sermon by saying in Acts 2.36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And then he continues on. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. So they were sorry. Okay. But that's not repentance. Okay. They were sorry. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? See, there's a do to repentance. It's not just, I'm feeling sorry. Being cut to the heart is not repentance. Being cut to the heart will lead you to repentance, but it is not repentance. There's a do. That, now, now, by the way, they do not say, it does not say, what shall we do to be saved? They just said, what do we do? There's got to be something that we do to show that we are repentant. And Peter says, well, you need to repent. You need to turn around. You need to return. You need to have a change of mind, however you want to say it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, there it is. The power of the Holy Spirit to come in and to change us. The promises for you and your children, for all who are far off. He's talking about us. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded, save yourself from this corrupt generation. You see there in that wording, uh, or at least I do, a strong urging for people. You have to make a decision, guys. You have to make a decision. 
about this. Yeah, you were cut to the heart. Now do something about it. Make a decision. Repentance is decisive. It's like in the Old Testament. There's a prophet, Elijah, and he was challenging the prophets of this false god named Baal. And he was doing it in front of all of Israel because Israel was like, well, maybe we can have a little Baal, a little God. And he says to them in 1 Kings 18, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Yehovah is God, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. In other words, make a decision. <laughs> to repent is to stop wavering between two opinions. It's a call to either get right or essentially get left. <laughs> Repentance is the cure for wishy-washy, half-hearted approach to spirituality. Hoping, far too many believers are here, hoping to keep one foot in the world, doing it the world's way, and one foot in heaven, so that my eternity is taken care of. There are so many people who are interested in the kingdom of God, who once they saw what repentance was all about, they walked away. They made a decision. Why? Because it was clear, it was clear that repentance, and this is the last thing, repentance is supposed to be a productive word. And they didn't want to do that. So they made a decision. But I, I want to now look at what it means for repentance to be a productive word. To repent meant something to the Bible writers. That there was supposed to be a change in your life because of repentance. It was to actually alter the course of your life. For instance, when, when folks came down to the Jordan River, when John the baptizer was baptizing people, and he was preaching a, 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 a baptism of repentance, they heard him preach repentance. So they asked for clarification. Well, what, what do you mean by repentance? Well, Luke chapter 3 tells us he answered them, well, for example, whoever has two tunics should share with him who has no tunic. And whoever has food should do the like should do likewise. So then tax collectors came to be baptized. They said, Well, what do we do? Again, do you see the do in here? And he said, Don't collect any more than you're authorized to collect. And then soldiers asked. These are Roman soldiers. They're saying, Well, what do we do? If you're talking about repentance, what do we do? And he said, Don't extort money from anybody by threats or by false accusations. And be content with your wages. So, do you see the action there, by the way? Or, or am I just making this up? Okay, Can you see the action? Uh, you, you say we need to repent. Well, what does that look like? Well, let me show you. It does look like something. It's not just being sorry. Uh, for John, repentance meant a change of life. Not to just be sorry for your sin, but to change your ways. With repentance, you cannot stay the way you are. Right. You can't keep going the way you're going. You can't keep thinking the way you've been thinking. You can't keep exalting the stuff that you are exalting. You can't keep acting the way that you've been acting. In other words, repentance doesn't just lead you to heaven. Repentance leads you to holiness. Here's something I believe is the most powerful aspect of repentance that is missed by far too many believers today. Repentance is not just a one-time thing. A prayer of confession at the beginning of your faith journey that allows God's grace to come and forgive you of all your past sins. No, repentance is something that must be ongoing. Yes, it's there in the beginning of the process, but it has to lead you to the other foundational truths. By the way, that are mentioned there in Hebrews chapter 6. Repentance 
from dead works leads us to faith in God and being obedient in baptism and surrendering to the work of the Holy Spirit and then eventually to eternal life. See, we cannot grow to understand the deeper things of God until we get into our heads that repentance is a continual process. I need to repent on a continual basis. It's part of the ongoing sanctification or the ongoing saving of God's people. Because we still encounter the effects of our sinful nature on a daily basis. And because of that, we must remember repentance must be a daily decision to say no to our sinful desires and yes to following God. I think this is the most powerful reason that Ash Wednesday begins this period called Lent. Consider this. Lent typically is seen as a time to to give something up for 40 days, just like Jesus gave up food and water for 40 days while he was being tempted in the, in the wilderness, um, right after his baptism, right before his ministry. And so people say, well, I'll give up something. I'll, I'll give up TV for Lent. I'll, I'll give up the internet for Lent. I'll, I'll give up chocolate for Lent. I'll give up meat for Lent, whatever. And, and that's fine. But what if, what if, instead of getting rid of those kinds of things for Lent, what if somebody made the decision to get rid of a particular sin for 40 days? That literally they say, you know, for the next 40 days, I will make every effort to work on this area of my life. Or uh, maybe it's in, in a positive way. You say instead of stopping doing something that you actually decide for the next 40 days, I'm going to be in the Word. Or for the next 40 days, I'm going to be praying on a daily basis for five to ten minutes of every day. I'm going to make sure that I'm connecting with, with God. Either way, whether it's getting rid of a sin or adding a spiritual discipline into your life, what if you would surrender that part of your life to the leading of the Holy Spirit for 40 days, starting on Ash Wednesday, leading up to Resurrection Sunday? What kind of power do you think might get you be giving to the Holy Spirit to actually come in and actually change your life. If you stopped doing a sin for 40 days, maybe it's the Holy Spirit will make it completely gone. Maybe if you add a spiritual discipline to your life for 40 days, the Holy Spirit will build that into your life where it becomes a part of who you are. See, that is much more life-changing than just putting some ash on your head and saying, I'm not going to eat chocolate for the next 40 days. One last thing to consider. When God's people decide that repentance is something for them, it can also change the world. Mm. There's a passage in the Old Testament, the book of First Chronicles, that I, 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 I know believers love to quote this passage. When we see the state, uh, the state of our culture, uh, when we see the sinfulness of this world, when we see the rebellion of our nation, we go to this passage, 1 Chronicles 7.14, as a way of asking God to restore everything to the way he designed it, to heal our nation, to deal with those sinners out there. The scriptures, 1 Chronicles 7.14, If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, there it is, turn, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Church, don't miss this. This passage is not saying that God is saying that if the world would turn from their wicked ways, he'll hear from heaven and heal their land. He's not saying if the lost people would just turn to him, 
then he will go ahead and forgive us and heal our land. Does that happen? Sure. But this passage says, no, if his own people, if we, the ones called by his name, will humble ourselves and we seek his face, and if we turn, repent from our wicked ways, that's when God moves. I hear so many people just pray, God, God, America is so lost. Please bring America back. They're so sinful. Please, God, let them turn so that you can heal our land. And I go, God's calling you to turn from your wicked ways, to repent, and in humility call on him. Seek his face. Seek a stronger relationship with your creator. Walk in his ways rather than your own. That is going to be the power that heals this land. So will you heed God's call this week, this special time in the church calendar, Ash Wednesday, to not necessarily put physical ash on your head, but to bring that ash of repentance into your life and to allow God's Spirit to actually raise you from the dead and turn your life around? Will you give him that control? So that's uh, what we're going to be preaching on today. It looks like it's less than 30 minutes, which is really cool, because I'm still at less than 30 minutes, and I had all of that um, blabbing at the beginning. So anyways, thank you guys for listening in. Um, I'm losing my voice, so uh, I guess I'm going to have Ron pray that I keep my voice while I tell people about this. I've been sick all week, so I'm getting better, but I still don't have a voice. Anyway, God bless you for tuning in. Uh, thank you, Lisa uh, Welly, for being my executive producer. Uh, it's good to have somebody who cares about this so much that she is always saying, hey, have you done this? I, I need this. And so thank you, Lisa, for your uh, your, your burden, your, your passion for this, and for all the work that you do. Um, we'll catch you next week when we look at what faith in God is all about. That might be a couple weeks series, because faith is kind of a big thing. And by the way, as a preview as a little spoiler alert. It also has something to do with obedience. Not just a, well, I believe. No, it's, are you willing to put your life on that belief? So, all right, we'll catch you guys next time.